0: Good morning. You're listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. A weekly conversation with the interesting artists, philosophers, and thinkers of our day. A show that's willing to discover the question to the answer of 42. Today is January 29th, 2013, and I am Douglas Bowles. This is episode number 69, and today we're hoping to bring you a peak experience. A peak
1: experience indeed. In fact, our guest, Mr. Anthony Peak, is bringing us all kinds of spooky action. Hello, I'm William Morgan, and today on 42 Minutes, we will be getting some advice on how to cheat the ferryman. Like I said, our guest is Anthony Peak, a widely acclaimed author of a handful of books focusing on altered states of consciousness, such as near death experience, lucid dreaming, and time perception. The work and research of Mr. Peak is developing a new way of describing the relationship between conscious experience and the external world. He calls this the introsomatic experience. For more information about this and his work you can uh, visit his website anthonypeak.com. Anthony Peak also hosts a podcast on the H2O network called The Peak Experience, the Anthony Peak Consciousness Hour. We will be uh, we will link to his archive on our website so you can find out more. Um, he's also published in the Sync Book, Volume 2, wherein he authors Chapter 25, Synchronicity and the Law of Large Numbers. Hello, Mr. Peak, How is it on the other side of the pond?
2: Hello, guys. Yeah, it's not too bad at all. No, uh, it's quite quite reasonable just a bit later afternoon than you are, but uh, I do love the fact that you started 11.11 as well, which is, which is excellent.
1: Well, we, we we tried to start
0: at 11. We never start on time.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it, this has been a very unusual experience already to this point. But, you know, since we've had so many technical difficulties up till now, let's just get into it. Um, before we talk about your piece, I want to ask you about Valles as the daemon. Would that be a correct interpretation?
2: It probably would, yes. Um, because uh, funnily enough I'm, I'm heavily involved in researching the life and works the experiences of Philip K. Dick at the moment uh, for a book that we'll, we'll, we plan to publish or my publisher will be, is planning to publish it in November of this year uh, where I'll be approaching the, the life and the times of Philip K. Dick from a, a slightly different angle from the, the other handful of biographers that have attempted this in the sense that uh, in my book The Damon of Guides Your Extraordinary Secret Self um, I draw certain parallels between the life experiences of Philip Kavit, particularly his experiences of 2374, in relation to my own hypothesis, which I call the Daemon-Egalon dyad. And in this, I'm suggesting that we have two loci of consciousness in the brain, uh, the everyday self, which is which I call the Egalon, and the, um, the immortal self, the timeless self, which I call the Daemon. And... I believe that what took place with Phil from February, March, 1974, uh, well, was actually more immediate in his life at that time, but beforehand had been manifest for most of his life, whereby he was in direct contact with his own daemon, his own higher self. Now, as you probably may be aware, Phil played around with um, large doses of vitamins in order to, as he said, make his work, make his brain, work synchronistically in the sense of his right and left hemispheres worked together and resonated together. And I suggest that he was, to a certain extent, successful in this, because what he did was he opened up the, um, as uh, Huxley would call it, the doors of perception. And in doing so, opened up the channels to his own higher self, which manifested itself as AI or ballast, or whatever it was, was the entity that seemed to manifest in Phil's life, and indeed, I would argue that there is strong evidence that throughout his life, Phil showed great powers of recognition. Indeed, many of his novels were uh, alarmingly precognitive. In fact, a lot of his earlier um, plot lines for his earlier stories in the 50s and 60s were very much directly based upon experiences he had in the 1970s, which is, right. which is bizarre in the extreme.
1: Yeah, I have actually read uh, the short story that he wrote for uh, Total Recall, um, and it was done I, I almost, I think, at least a decade before his experience. But it's funny because, uh, you know, his his one of his initial experiences, one of the ones that most people talk about, is the one with the golden fish, where he was on, I believe it is it sodium pentothal, is the sort uh, truth serum. But in the story for Total Recall, that's how the character remembers who he is, is they give him sodium pentothal. And I thought that was so odd because basically, you know, I look at almost all Dick characters as Dick, really. You know, Mm -hmm. each one, if it be the Adjustment Bureau or uh, Minority Report, all have this, this, or even the Harrison Ford character in Blade Runner, it's like it's all K-Dick. It's all, he's just writing the story about himself over and over again.
2: Well, it's, it's really strange in the sense that if you get hold of my book, the, um, uh, the Day in the Guide to Extraordinary Secret Self, the last chapter deals with how I was um, evaluating Philip K. Dick's experiences around about five or six years ago, maybe seven years ago. And one of the things I found was, it was fantastically intriguing, and I'll be talking to Tim Powers about this when I speak to him next week, because as you know, Tim was one of uh, Phil's closest friends, and in fact was the model for one of the characters in, uh, in Vallis uh, he's the model of the, the Catholic friend in Vallis oh. and what intrigues me was that Phil wrote a series of letters to a pen pal somebody else I'm now directing such as by the way I was in email contact with her recently is a lady called Gloria Krenz Bush and mm. Phil was writing to her in the early and mid 1970s uh, in fact I'm crying through all his selected letters at the moment letter by letter which is fascinating in itself But the thing with Gloria was that he he wrote a letter to Gloria uh, sometime in 1975, 75, 76, something like that. And in this letter, he states categorically, Gloria, I I woke up in the middle of last night in a hypnagogic fugue. And in this hypnagogic imagery, um, I saw um, a a middle-aged man lying flat on his stomach between a, a chair and a coffee table. And then he turned around and he said, I'm very, very disturbed about this. Now, as you are probably aware, when uh, when, Tim, when Phil did not turn up for the, the usual, I think it was the Tuesday meeting that Tim Powers used to have with Phil and group of friends, they went round to his house um, and they found, they broke in, and they found Phil, mind unconscious, on the floor between a coffee table and the city. which is exactly what he had seen in his own hypnagogic imagery in the middle of one night, and wrote to Gloria Krenz about this years before. Now, right. that is absolutely uncanny, beyond anything I can, I can ever describe. But this was just one of many things that happened to him like this. You know, this wasn't unusual. Um, he was convinced himself, if you read sections of his exegesis, he was convinced himself, he came up with a concept he called all, and all time. And what he argued was that time was slowing backwards for him. And in fact, right. he was back back sending messages to an earlier version of himself, who was then writing what? The
1: well, there's that part in Radio Free, Albermuth where he actually sees himself at the foot of the bed, but that, that's hmm. multiple times that it happened to him, right?
2: Yeah, that's very much... Um, when you, when you, and you, when you look at the Valis the, the trilogy um, of, of Alvermouth and Divine Invasion and Valis, and of course, it's nearly all autobiographical, you know, and effectively the character of uh, Horse Lover Fat is, of course, a very clever pun on the name Phil, Phil Dick. And, and clearly he's writing about his own experiences there. And he's writing it as a form of fiction that is not fiction. You know, it's, it's, it's very much him trying to understand. And of course, as you know, in his exegesis, it runs to millions of words. And in these millions of words, he has as many ideas and explanations as to what happened to him in 1974 as, as the line, I think, in Vallis, where it turns around and said that uh, Horst of the past had as many ideas as there were days in the week as to what had actually happened to him. And each day they were different. And this is because he had no real understanding of what was going on in his mind. But clearly something was.
0: Yeah. And I think this is one of the reasons why Vallis is so much fun is because he doesn't necessarily take a stand. He drops you right in the middle of the crazy, and then he's trying to figure it out. And so you don't ever really know what to believe.
2: Mm. Oh, well, I was surprised to discover, for instance, I thought that at least the thing at the start of Ballast, where the woman commits suicide by jumping off the building in the center of uh, L.A. was fiction. But it wasn't. Even that actually happened. Mm. There was a woman who jumped off a building who was a friend of Phil's. So, you know, even what you think of your side stories are actually based on actual facts. Well, that's one of the
1: things that we're reading, Valis. I mean, you become – after a while, Philip K. Dick starts to feel like a friend. If you read his book, they're so – I I don't want to call them dark, but there's a certain depression that's in them. I mean, Valis
2: is very sad. Well, I'm of the impression that he he, – he considered himself to be schizophrenic. Um, I think that was probably a little bit pushing the boat out. I think oh, because if you look at his books again, the, 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 the theme of schizophrenia runs um, through all his novels. The idea that a schizophrenic is somebody who uh, Huxley's reducing valve um, has been has been changed. In other words, he's seeing reality as it really is. In other words, the brain is an attenuator, which is again what uh, Onne Bergson said. And effectively, Phil would argue that this is what happens to schizophrenic. I mean, in Martian Timeslip, he talks about this, the young, the young lad in Martian Timeslip, the way he perceives reality. Right. But Nanny. I think... Manny. I,
1: I, I, I think it's interesting because the kid who is in Martian Timeslip and the kid who is in Divine Invasion, they're both named Manny. And they both yeah. have kind of like, uh, they have psychotic episodes.
2: And of course, there's Jody, isn't there, in um, in Ballas as well. I think it's right. about a story. No, no, Geordie's in, um, not in Spigmata, Geordie's in, oh, Nubik. Oh, you know, okay. the young lad in Nubik that is manipulating reality. And of course, this right. brings us right round to my hypothesis in my first book, Is the Life After that, The Extraordinary signs of What Happened when, when We Die. Because effectively, in that book, I describe in detail the signs of what Phil describes in Half-Life, in Nubik where the characters are existing in this position of half-life between life and death. And that's exactly what I, my hypothesis of Cheating the Ferryman is about. But as an interesting other aside to this, um, people have told me that Philip K. Dick predicted me, <laughs> which gets <yeah>, more bizarre. <laughs> it's just, if, if you read um, um, oh, the novel where time is running backwards, um, oh, with a central character is called Anarch Peak. Uh, Counterclock world. Oh. And Counterclock Counter world is a character called Anarch Peak. And Anarch Peak comes up with, with various hypotheses about about human nature, what happens after death, and everything else. And there's me writing now a book about that. But subsequently, I'm then writing a book about Philip K. Dick. And I'd always wonder, just imagine, this is completely hypothetical, but just imagine if Philip K. Dick was precognitive, and he, he, in some kind of alternate reality, sees his name on a bookshelf, and it's Philip K. Dick, and then he writes underneath, and he sees underneath, on the spine of the book cover, a name that he can't quite see because he's in a hypnagogic imagery, and it says A-Peak, A-N-Peak. I mean, yeah, that
1: would make sense, because he, if, you, if you read his exegesis, there's, he's shown book after book after book. He always yeah. talks about having these dreams where he's like in a library, learning totally. stuff that he can't remember.
2: I know. Wow. When, you know, when he has all these books, he sees all these books. And, of course, he was arguing at that stage that these books were being projected to him by a group of Russian researchers, so <laughs> researchers um, near Leningrad and they were sending him images from the, the Hermitage Museum there, the art gallery of Crees and Trudinsky's and everything else. But he also saw the books. And, of course, there's the famous story of the, the Budding Grove, where he sees a book title, and he's really keen to find it. And he eventually finds the book title, and he discovers, much to his amazement, that it's a biography of Warren Gamelio Harding, the American president, which had no links to anything. Now, other people, I'm um, I, I aware of the fact that the character of Anarche Peak is supposedly based upon James Pike, uh, uh, Bishop James Pike, who was a close friend of Phil's, and of course okay. he's the central character of the Transmigration of Timothy Archer. Right, because the last Timothy book. Timothy Archer is Pike. So there is an argument to say that, but who's to say that he wasn't paralleling ideas mm-hmm. and thoughts? I mean, what's, the, what's the
1: name of the last book again?
2: The Transmigration of Timothy Archer. Timothy Archer.
0: I really enjoyed that one. There was something uncanny about how he, he I mean, from just a, a literary standpoint, he's, he's such a great writer, and he, he kind of plays with this idea where you want to believe in the, the paranormal, but then he does such a good job of dissuading you, you don't know what to believe at the end, whether or not th- this, his soul really transmigrated. Or not?
2: Yeah, it, it's very clever, isn't it? And again, the, the whole concept of this, it goes back to the exegesis. And if you read the exegesis uh, and you read his letters, he was actually convinced that after, um, after James Pike died, because you probably know James Pike died under tragic circumstances out in the Palestinian desert, in the Judean desert, where he, he left his car and he died of first. Now, Phil was convinced that what had actually happened was that the ballast creature, or whatever it was that took him over, at one stage he strongly believed that this was Timothy, this was, in fact, a transmigration of, of his old friend Jim Pike, and that Jim Pike had actually taken him over bodily. Because, for instance, he turns around and he says, He made me cut my nose hairs. He actually made me sack my, my agents. He did all these things. And he said, He found that he was having dreams whereby he would see his own mother. And then what he thought was his own mother, and the mother would turn around, and it wouldn't be his mother. It would be James Pike's mother. And, of course, in transmigration, of Timothy Archer, this is what he's saying, that the central character, or one of the characters, is taken over by um, the, uh, one of the earlier characters. Now, again, if you look into Phil's work, you will see that this is, again, very much a theme you know, you know controlling other human beings in different ways. So th- there's a lot in there, and I think Phil himself wasn't entirely sure what was happening. And indeed, I find it very sad in many ways that I'm reading all these letters now that really should never have been, well, shouldn't have been published. It's not the question. We need the letters. But clearly, he wasn't writing these letters for somebody to read in the way that I'm reading them. Um, but nevertheless, you can really draw the parallels, and you can sort of see how his ideas develop. And it's intriguing. Absolutely intriguing.
0: So this leads me to a question. So we think about these people with precognition or that somehow their, their psychological filter drops and they're able to really perceive time as a unity. Do you think this is where we're moving or this is like an abnormal human that shows us a different nature of reality that we, we can't see?
2: Um, in my my second to last book, or was it not my last book, I've written so many now that I'm getting confused about the chronology, carn- I wrote a book called The Labyrinth of Time, which came out in November two years ago. And no, no, it came out, out earlier than that. But in The Labyrinth of Time, I discussed the concept of time, you know, both from a, a the viewpoint of a physicist, from the viewpoint of a novelist, from the viewpoint of a mystic, uh, and I'm very, very intrigued about the idea of time because time is completely a mental construct. You know, as St. Augustine said, you know, people turn around to me and say, um, what is time? I immediately think I know. But as soon as you start to think about it in any way at all, it, it, it crumbles in your hands because it's such a difficult concept to come to conclusions about. And in fact, the central part of my initial hypothesis of cheating experiment is that at the point of death, um, chemicals in the brain actually slow down the perceptions of time to such an extent that effectively time stops for the observer. But time continues for in objective time, time continues, but subjective time, um, internal time, it stops or it slows down to such an extent that you can actually effectively relive your life again in a three-dimensional recreate matrix-like recreation of your life. Now, if this was the case and part of you remembered that, you would have an element of you that was preoccupied, in the sense that it's a part of you that remembers if you've lived this life before. I always use the analogy. Imagine um, a, a, a sprite on a computer screen in a first-person computer game. That sprite will have lived, played that game many, many times, but each time it plays it, as far as this is concerned, it's the first time. The part that knows what happened last time is the game player, but the sprite doesn't know this. So the spike just runs down the corridor and it's the game player that manipulates where the spike goes. So the game player is able to avoid the monster that comes around the corner and it's Lara Croft. And he makes Lara move into a different direction. And I argue this is what happens in, in our reality.
1: Well, see, there's another individual who's in the same think book you are named Mark LeClaire, who has come up with a theory called the Vallas Loop. As if mm-hmm. there is no death, what happens when someone dies, they just turn the loop and go back. Now, there's been multiple models of this theory seeing that like on, on one side of the loop we're in our time, on the other side of the loop we're in the Roman times and things of this nature, but that sounds a lot like you're cheating the ferryman hypothesis. It does, what,
2: what again is the guy's name? Mark Leclerc.
1: Mark Leclerc, yes, the wrong way wizard. He's a blogger who blogs a lot about synchronicity, but he's a... Uh, uh, he's he's a, a student of K. Dick, I should say.
2: Interesting. No, that's, that's very good, because I, I will try and include a reference to this um, within, within my manuscript, because this is, this is very interesting, because effectively what I'm arguing is exactly a very similar kind of thing, only I believe that the loop is to do with your own life. In other words, you don't loop back to ancient Roman times, as clearly Phil he was doing um, in, in his phallus experiences where he thought that we were all trapped in 70 AD. Um, I'm suggesting that you go back to your own birth and you live it again, which is more a similar kind of thing, but a lot more relaxed than, than Nietzsche's idea of the eternal recurrence or the eternal return. Um, because I suggest that this could explain deja vu, it could explain recognition, it could explain a lot of phenomena that um, at the moment don't make any sense. Um, because if the, future's already out there, uh, if the future is out is not out there and rejects the experience and gets in the midst, how can we possibly see it? But if we're living in a recording, and we've lived this recording many times. Funny enough, recently I interviewed um, Danny Rubin, uh, who was the, the writer, the screenwriter of the movie Groundhog Day. Nice. Um, and, Danny, and Danny and I were discussing the hypothesis of the eternal return and the eternal recurrence. And indeed, Danny has um, given copies of my first book to most of his friends at Harvard. Because he gets around he says, This guy's actually done the science at Groundhog Day, which is, which is very, very flattering.
0: But that speaks to a purpose for life.
2: Well, what it suggests is that it's, it, it, it's, it is effectively teleological, is the technical term for it, isn't it? The idea that there is, there is a purpose. Now, whether this is the case, I'm not entirely sure, but I use the same argument, is it a purpose to a computer game? In that, if you play the game over and over again, you will eventually do the perfect game where you will right. live the perfect life. And when you do that, as, as Colin does in, in Groundhog Day, he lives the perfect day, doesn't he? He makes sure that he's doing good for doing good. sake. he's under the tree to save the little kid from falling out of the tree. He, he rushes around the town doing good. And what effectively happens there is he moves away from the, the, the selfishness state that the Buddhists would say, and he moves into a state of, of um, just being good. And when he does that, he's allowed to move on to the next day. Now, you're probably aware that in, in Tibetan Buddhism, in the Bardo Thodol, in, 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 in the Thodol, there's something called the Bardo state. And the Bardo state is a state between life and death which is effectively the equivalent of the Catholic concept of purgatory. Now, imagine the scenario that these things, these ideas are actually correct, but they've become garbled. So in which case, purgatory or the the Barbados state is, in fact, my hypothesis, what I call the Boney and IMAX. It's the place between life and death where you live within this three-dimensional reality. Now, in my latest books, I'm actually doing the science of this even greater because what I'm doing is I'm suggesting that this information is drawn up from something called the zero-point field, which is a form of energy that's found um, effectively at just uh, at absolute zero. Uh, and the, the, the theory is that this field fills everything. It's a form of energy, the zero-point energy. But on top of that, it's, it's hypothesized that this, in, this field is a field of information, and it's something being put forward by a guy called Urban Laszlo. And what I'm suggesting is that this information, every experience you have is downloaded or uploaded, and I'm not sure which, from the zero point field. And I'm even doing the science of how this is uploaded into consciousness. And I think it's uploaded by something called a microtrabecular uh, trellis into the microtubules of the brain and into the neurons of the brain. And then it's processed by the pineal gland. And the images you see are actually something called bioluminescence. This is light given off by DNA itself. There is Inner a light. light. Inner light. Now, effectively, one of the things I mentioned in my next book, which I've just finished literally today doing the editing of, is that I don't know if you may be aware of this or seen recent experiments, but it's been shown that if you are seeing internal light in your mind's eye, like you're seeing a dream or something else, the, the, the visual pathways of the brain trigger in exactly the same way as if you were seeing real light. So in other words, the brain is seeing light as it really is. So in which case, for instance, one of the most intriguing things, if you close your eyes at night and you're in a completely darkened room, you will know occasionally see things called phosphines. And phosphines are kind of stimulus-like stimulus within the retina of the eye right. and within the brain. They are not really sure where phosphines come from. They know, for instance, if you press your eye, you will get phosphines taking place. But when the eye isn't pressed, you still see flickering lights. And I argue these flickering lights are actually biophotons being drawn up to the zero point field.
1: Wait, because K Dick talked about this too. He called it the plasmate, the living plasmate, the little things.
2: Correct. Phil himself, if you actually look at Phil's work, he was fascinated by phosphines.
1: Right. And, and this is, wait, because in Scanner Darkly too, at the end of Scanner Darkly there's this whole big chapter where he sees all of those uh, abstract paintings change and switch and he caught, that was the, like this living energy field. Like yeah. sh- wow, like wow, a,
2: that's great. His whole concept of the plasmate and the homoplasmate and everything is, is just incredible. And again, this is the one thing that I find profoundly not disturbing, I find it quite strange, in that as Tessa Dick has told me, his, his, his last wife, because Tessa and I are in contact quite regularly, is that she said she, he would be absolutely blown away with you the way you're taking this work. Because she said he would, he would he'd be jumping up and down because she said you're doing the science of his experiences. And this is not something I've planned. This is something I've, you know, from my various books, I've just been led to this direction and when one of my publishers approached me last year and said we'd like you to write a book because i pitched another book completely and they said we don't want you to write this we want to but we want you to write a new biography of philip k dick because we believe this is where you need to go because this is where you're at at the moment and i thought about it i thought my god they're right this is and now because literally the last six months i've done nothing but read philip's letters read all his biographies read everything that's been written about him that's available. And I have to thank a friend of mine called Nick Buchanan, uh, who is um, a, a Philip K. Dick scholar who's been so helpful in this. I mean, thanks, Nick, if you're listening out there, or will be. You know, I, I couldn't have done without you, mate. You know, some of the books he's got, you just cannot get for love no money. Um, and it's all joining together. It's like a huge jigsaw puzzle, and it's just falling into place. And it, it's intriguing. It's, it's very, very strange.
1: Well, you, uh, oh, nice.
0: yeah, I, I'm kind of left speechless too, because it seems like we all sense that where our lives—I mean, I—I I refer to sometimes God, the author, where we're a character in the story. We're being led in a direction, and sometimes you hear the music, and you're you're beckoned to follow. You
2: know, I, th- I think it's more than that. Um, in, in my next book, which is going to be my pulling it all together before, before the film book comes out, it's going to be called Mindfield. And in Mindfield, I take the work of people such as Professor Bernard H., who is um, a, an American astrophysicist, and a guy called um, Martin W. Ball. And both these guys have come up with something very similar which is generally known as the entheological paradigm. And the entheological paradigm is saying that effectively by using certain mind-expanding substances such as dimethyltryptamine or ayahuasca or whatever we want to call it, you can attune into the mind of God. Now, by the mind of God, what the entheological paradigm is suggesting is that the mind of God is effectively the collective consciousness of everybody. In other words, as Bill Hicks said, We are all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. Now, this would explain a lot of the ideas of exactly what we mean when we use the term God. Because if suddenly God is an aspect of you, suddenly things start to make sense. This suddenly shows how you can manipulate your environment. Like earlier on, we were both expecting Skype to not work, and it didn't. This is because we're manipulating our environment in some way. But there's more interest to this because imagine the scenario. And again, this goes back even to the Kabbalah. I'm actually working with a guy called Rabbi Joel Bax, who who has written a series of books, uh, written a series of, of PDFs about the true nature of reality, about damnical tryptamine the pineal gland, and what he calls the the, the pineal gate, the P2P hypothesis. And again, he, he, you go back to the Kabbalah, you go back to all religious belief systems, and they all come back to the same conclusion. We are God. God is within. God is within us all. Now, imagine a scenario that you are God. I mean, I'm not religious, but just for a second, imagine that you're God. How do you enjoy yourself? How do you deal with the universe? You, you encapsulate yourself into a body, and you suffer from amnesia, amnesis, which is exactly what Phil discusses in The Divine Invasion, where if you remember, young man is God, but he's forgotten he's God. Right. And this yeah, comes, across it, yeah, and it comes across again and again in Phil's writing, the idea of a God that has forgotten his God, a God that has become embodied within this world. Now, this again goes back to Gnosticism, which again was a huge influence on Phil. He talks about the idea in, is it which novel is it now? There's one novel where he talks about an entrapment of, of a particle of something that's inside you that is part of something greater. Now, in Gnostic thought, this is, this is actually called the shard. Oh, uh, Galactic Pot Healer. That's the book. In Galactic oh. Potila, he argues that, that, that light has been entrapped within physical bodies. This is straight from the Kabbalah. This is, it is Kabbalistic belief systems. Phil was phenomenally well-read. You know, you pick up these little nuances, and, and it's because I've been reading this stuff for years, I pick i up and go, it's Kabbalah. It's what Joel Bax talks about. So the idea, is God is trapped within matter. Now, if you look back to the writings of the Gnostics, they will argue that there is a reality behind the reality, which is called a Pleroma. It's where everything is. And that was a God behind the God. And again, this is something that Phil argues, and it's something that philosophers have worked with, the problem of something called theodicy: Why does God allow evil to exist? And this is because... The god that we perceive to be the god is not a god. It's a demiurge. This, again, in Phil's novels, you get it again and again and again. The idea of a false god who's created this illusionary reality that we're within. The glimung in, in um, again, one of his novels uh, on Plowman's Planet. I can't remember the novel now. But the glimung is, 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 is uh, an entity that is a collective entity that is a manifestation of god. But there's the dark glimung, the black glimung, that is another manifestation of God. And this goes back again to Zoroastrianism. And Phil, again, was writing Zoroastrianism in one of his very early novels. He has a small town in Middle America that's actually the battlefield between uh, Ahuru Mazda and um, whatever the, the, the other God is. Um, and again... know, writing some incredible things that were resonating, and they resonate so strongly with me, I find it to the point of almost being weird, I have to
1: say. Well, yeah, I mean, what's interesting to me is that, uh, Kay Dick, you know, in the experience of Valance, how he has this paranormal event, and he goes to a movie and he sees it in media, but I come across the whole theme of the Damien uh over and over and over and over in modern pop culture and it oh, no. it feels like dick was right to a certain extent and like what doug was saying earlier that there does seem to be some kind of plan or for, there's a process <laughs> no, no
0: no no it does well i'm <laughs> well i to think say the plan like, is that at some point we realize that somehow we're colluding with ourselves to create yeah. the story it's a divine think, invasion it's it's yeah, God I think, I think
2: this is a, it's yeah. the perfect point, isn't it? But what is happening is that there is not a collusion going on. There is there is a loss of loss of memory. It's amnesis again. It's the idea that we, certain people, are now dawning on people. And why, when we go into quantum physics, and in my books I go into neurology, I go into quantum physics, I go into the structure of the atom, I go into the structure of neuro, neurobiology, neurochemistry. And what we're finding is that the reality we think is a reality is not quite the reality it seems. There's something, as in the Matrix, you know, what is it, Neo? There's something, there's something, it's like a, 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 something in your brain that's nagging away, that's something not quite right about things. And we occasionally get these wake up calls when you'll have a deja vu sensation, you'll have a precognition, or something will not seem quite right about reality. As Phil said, it's the thing with the light switch or the light, or the, 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 uh, the light cause. Well, one minute it was a light switch and then it's a light call. The same thing is put across many, many times. And I think this is part of the zeitgeist. This is why novels and books and movies are now being made. In my books, I deal with movies because I'm fascinated as to how the zeitgeist is picking up this this idea of the illusion of reality, the idea of the circularity of time, um, the idea that that at the point of death something very peculiar happens. For instance, Vanilla Sky, the ending of Vanilla Sky where David Ames, the central character, jumps off the building. I I don't know if you've ever, if you've got the DVD, but what I suggest you do is watch the end of that movie and just freeze frame the end sequence when he's falling. Because if you freeze frame it, you'll find a series of pictures taken from Cameron Crowe's life from his childhood to his adulthood flashing in front of your eyes as he falls. It's what's called a panoramic life review. Again, I'm a member of the International Association of Near Death Studies. And one of the things that intrigues me is these reports and people are drowning where they say, my life flashed before my eyes. This is significant. These are things, we have the clues in plain sight. It's just we're not seeing them. We're not pulling them together. And what I'm trying to do in my books is saying, take a bit of this. Take a bit of that, pull it together, see what sense it makes of it, and I'm finding that the pieces fit.
1: Do you think that synchronicities are just kind of reverberations from this happening over and over and over again, or like little self-crumbs, if you
2: would? I do, and I'll t- I can tell you one synchronicity that will make, make a shiver go down your spine on this. I was discussing earlier on the fact that, that you start your show at 11:11. 11 now, I've been preoccupied with the 11-11 phenomenon, prompt phenomenon, for quite a time now. And on my forum, uh, the Cheating the Ferryman Forum, there's a whole section on the 11-11 phenomenon. Now, I would argue that initially it's just to do with the fact that we notice the numbers 11-11 because they're the only numbers that are actually straight down. So it's something we're going to notice. And I was, I was talking about this to my wife about three or four years ago. And I said, you know, this 11-11 thing is driving me mad. I see it everywhere. It keeps coming up. And she turned around to me and she said, the biggest 11-11 in your life you haven't even seen, and it's right in front of your eyes. And I said, why? And she went out and she gave me, she went to my library, and she took out the copy of the Dutch language edition of my first book, Is There Life After Death? I'd never seen it. The title yeah. of that book... Is eleven eleven eleven. It's Dutch for life after life after life. And what what is that trying <laughs> to tell us?
0: Eleven eleven is life after life. Yep. There's 11, another 11. layer, actually. Um, so much of our SIG community found its initiation through nine eleven. And so Will and I are both in the mountain west of the United States and the talk shoe sets up a thing at eleven eleven but for us eleven eleven is nine eleven and so there 's this kind of coming together, and that 's one of those points, like you were talking about the zero point where where because you 're so near absolute zero, you have like uh, more complex structures but there 's something there's reverberations that just echo from the the 9-11 moment, both forward and backward through time
2: that we've observed. Totally. Have you, I don't know if you've seen, I'll put it up again on my Facebook page for everybody to see. But in my lectures, I talk about um, one of the best examples of recognition I have ever seen, and it is irrefutable. Um, and it's a picture of the 9-11 attacks. It's an album cover by a band called Coup, C-O-U-P. Oh, yeah. a gangster rap group. I don't know if you've heard about this.
1: Yeah, Um, yeah, we've seen this.
2: And the party music. Okay, I I was intrigued by this because uh, I noticed the album cover, and I know that they designed it in May of that year, but I was intrigued by the angle of the buildings. Mm. And I remembered on 9-11, or the day after it was on UK television, there was a video show of a man who I thought was drinking a cup of coffee. And the angle of the camera was quite strange. And as the plane goes into the building, they're looking up at the, at the Twin Towers. So in other words, they're very, very elongated. The angle is strange, yeah. which is exactly the same angle as on the Coup album cover. So what I did, I was amazed to discover, literally only about two months ago, maybe even, even less, maybe six weeks ago, I managed to find the video. And what is, is actually happening, it's a guy leaning on his car.
1: Yeah, he's on. The, I I know the video you're talking about. He's okay. like sitting on his car, and somebody's like down below Correct. filming, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I can.
2: what I did was I freeze frame that, and I found one of the images on the freeze frame that is can be is so close it can be virtually superimposed on the album cover. Even the smoke that's coming out from the impact and the smoke coming out the side is virtually identical to the album cover. Now, what I believe happened was that Bootsy Bootsy Collins, I think his name was, the guy who designed it, he actually saw, subliminally saw, in either a dream or something, that video, that specific video on the television. And this is what was the image in his mind that he then reproduced in the album cover. Now, if you go back in history, you will find that in the late 1920s, there was uh, an Anglo-Irish writer by the name uh, J.W. Dunn, John William Dunn. And he wrote a book called um, An Experiment with Time. And in this, he postulates that every night or most nights, we have precognitive dreams. It's just we don't remember them. And he suggested that you write down your dreams when you wake up. And he tested this out again and again and again, and he found that precognitive dreams were incredibly powerful. But the intriguing thing about his hypothesis was that the dreams you have are actually filled with the images you will see in the next few days. In other words, if you have a precognition of an event, you will not be there seeing the event. You will have an image of reading it in a newspaper, or you will see it on the TV, and that is what you will remember. Now, in fact, Dunn himself... In 1902, he was actually down in um, uh, South Africa covering the Boer War, and he had a dream at that time of, of living on a French Caribbean, French-speaking Caribbean island. And the people approached him to say that their main city had been, main town had been destroyed by an, um, a volcanic eruption. The dream was so vivid that he couldn't get it out of his mind because he was told that 4,000 people had been killed. Three or four days later, the newspapers come down to London, and he sees the Daily Telegraph, and on the headlines, it actually says, um, the town of Saint-Pierre on the French-speaking island of Mont, uh, Mont, uh, Mont-Soulat? Um, uh, was destroyed, and all the people were killed in the town, with the exception of a condemned criminal who was about to be hung for murder, That he survived, apparently. That's, um, that's God for you, I suppose. Um, but effectively, um, he, he, he read it as 4,000. It was only many years later that somebody pointed out to him that the newspaper article had not said 4,000, but 40,000. He then realized that he had actually misread the headline. And his right. misreading of the headline had uh, caused his dream, which <laughs> means that we have precognitive dreams based upon our own future. Which is right. intriguing in the x-ray.
0: It is intriguing and that's forty two minutes. Right. We're gonna end the call, but we'll we'll chat for a, a second later and finish it up. But thank you.